0: Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast Brought to you by the University of the West of England In this podcast we are joined by John Allen CBE Chair of Tesco PLC
1: Good evening everyone and a very happy new year I'm glad to see that uh, the distinguished uh, lecture series is off with a bang, and what a treat we have in store for us this evening. Tonight, Bristol Business School is fuller than the Palace of Westminster on a Brexit vote night. <laughs> John, welcome. You are, as they say, box office gold for us. <laughs> That's your appraisal done for the year. No, it is a pleasure to welcome John to Bristol. Uh, I hope John has spent the day doing some store visits in the area. But I can share with you a little secret that uh, over tea just now, John shared with me that uh, as chairman of Tesco PLC, he occasionally gets invited to product testing. And in the last few weeks, he's been testing a new range of male face creams, which he has been trying out and recommending to me in a kind of sympathetic, I can see you need this, (laughs) Stephen, sort of way. And uh, that's why John looks the youthful, vigorous person that he is. Now, I have known John for many years. Uh, John and I, at different times, were chairman of the Marketing Society. He's given me at various times his Uh, wise advice and insight, and I am very grateful for that. Uh, Most recently, when I've been on the board of Hargreaves Lansdowne and asking his corporate governance advice, which he shared generously with me. So, thank you to John, and tonight, John is going to have the opportunity to share with us all some of his wisdom and insight. Now, John is not only charming, but even better. He's a retailer at heart. One of John's earliest roles was at Finefair. Uh, hands up, who remembers Finefair? Remember <laughs> wow, now that was a branding success for a business that hasn't been on the high street for many years. And of course, today he is no less than chairman of Tesco PLC, where he has gradually helped Tesco back on the road to growth and to innovation. Now I happen to have, and this is very bad form, I know, but I happen to have a spy in his boardroom and she tells me that his style in the boardroom is one of great, great clarity and great collaboration with never far from his thoughts, the Tesco company, uh, the Tesco customer and the Tesco company colleagues. I have to say, the hallmarks of a great retailer and a great marketing man. Indeed, his CV is longer than a Tesco till receipt. He has experience in retail and logistics, and he has led as a non-executive role in many great businesses. Royal Mail, Hamleys, Samsonite, The National Grid, sharing Dixons through their marriage to Carphone Warehouse recently, the Investment House 3I, Payment Tech at WorldPay, as well, I believe, as an NED at the Home Office. Although I'm not clear, was that in the um, Home Office run by our current Prime Minister? It was indeed. So perhaps he'll spill the beans on that as well. And there is much, much more. Today he chairs Tesco, he chairs the house builder Barrett, and has recently been elected to President of the CBI, what more important role for us just now. And we've all watched last night the debacle at Westminster. Never before, surely, has Britain needed wise heads running British business. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to our speaker this evening, Mr John Allen, CBE.
2: Sorry, just switching my battery on so that I can keep going for the next uh, 30 (laughs) minutes. Please don't believe a word of what Stephen had to say. Um, You know That was vast, way over the top, and mostly undeserved. Uh, Stephen, your check will be in the post tomorrow. uh, uh, Well, look, thank you very much for turning out tonight. I thought there would be a massive fallout in the audience tonight because I thought people might find the Punch and Judy show tonight at uh, Westminster to be a much more interesting piece of political theater than coming along here uh, listening to some sort of ageing manager attempting to say a few words about the future of Britain but it's very kind of you to have turned out and it's great to be here and I think it's particularly apt to be able to speak here on the future of Britain given this institution's very strong commitment to the future workforce you know I think we, we work very hard at the cbi on all sorts of things it's a great team um, and those of you who aren't members already should give serious thought to so doing that's the only commercial by the way tonight i won't give you a commercial for uh, for tesco but um i think you know we're particularly proud that we have over 100 universities in membership and i think we try very hard to ensure that the population as a whole and in particular the political world understands the enormous contribution that our universities make to this country, not only in terms of education and learning and research, but also in terms of the economy, you know, the economic significance and impact of our, our universities, so it's great to, to be here. Uh, and to be in a university that's actually preparing students for a world of work, and I'll try and talk some more about this later, that will be unrecognizable to many of us even within the next decade you know, the Enterprise Zone on this campus, for example, or the Bristol Robotics Laboratory, which no doubt some of you are familiar with, you know, these are first steps into a world unknown. And of course, you know, we might say with the the events in Parliament yesterday evening, that the world became even less certain than it already was. And I came along today actually not intending to talk about Brexit, but given everything that's happening, I'd like to say just a few words on Brexit and then sort of put it behind me uh, and then, frankly, if people want to raise other things during Q&A, fantastic. But I'm sure you haven't come along tonight mainly to hear me pontificating about about Brexit. But just a summary of where I think we are. First of all, yesterday's vote, you know, the, the rejection, the comprehensive rejection by the House of Commons of the negotiated withdrawal deal, I think moves, means we're moving into a new phase of the Brexit saga. It's vitally important that as a nation, we find a way of avoiding the prospects of a no-deal Brexit. At the moment, it's only 70 days away. If nothing happens, we will crash out of the European Union on March the 29th. You know, all of the trade agreements which currently support about 70% of our trade, not only our trade with the EU, which is about 45% of our trade, but another 25%, which is with countries with whom the EU has trading agreements, people like Japan and Korea and Turkey and others. You know, we'll suddenly go to a situation where we have, you know, we have no trade deals with anyone. So it's going to be seriously damaging to our trade. We believe seriously damaging to the UK economy. Companies are already postponing investments. I talk to a lot of foreign-owned companies who are saying, their parent companies are saying to the moment, look, forget about that new factory line you planned or that new sort of technology center. Let's wait until we see how Brexit plays out, and then we make a decision. And some of those deferred investments will be gone forever, frankly. You know, they will never come back. I think there's a risk to jobs, and to particularly highly skilled jobs of the sort that, you know, are being delivered by what you do here in this university. So, and of course, businesses and the public sector are spending hundreds of millions of pounds in preparation for an event that's completely unnecessary. Uh, and that money is, you know, is money wasted. Now, the government now needs, I think, uh, and this is what we've been saying to government yesterday and today and for a while before, it needs to live up to what it said last night It needs, you know, the time, I think, for sort of party bickering and infighting. We should put firmly behind us. That doesn't mean we will do, but we should do. They need to consult widely across all parties. You know, if I were Prime Minister tomorrow and I'd only be one for a day, you know, I would get every single political party leader, you know, right down to, uh, you know, the lady who runs the Green Party. She's only got one MP, but she should be heard. Get them all into a room and basically say to them, look, you know, there will be coffee and sandwiches served every four hours, and frankly, when you're not leaving here until between us, amongst us, we've actually found a solution. And I think if it was attacked with that determination, we would emerge eventually, you know, it might only be starvation that would lead them to uh, agreement, <laughs> but we would get there and we'd have something. So I think they've got to consult widely. I think they've got to be open-minded and prepared to listen in a search for a solution. The government should stop trying to force its solution down everyone else's throats, and for a change say, look, you know, kind of let's listen to what are the best ideas that are around and can we actually select from those ideas and bring together a package that would command a majority in the House of Commons. I think they've got to do it rapidly. Time is not on our side, but a lot of people have been doing a lot of thinking about Brexit for a very long time and therefore the ideas are out there. You know, this doesn't need original research. It just needs bringing, I think, the best people together. And they need to provide leadership, very clear leadership, in leading the country towards a solution that eventually will be acceptable to Parliament, acceptable to the British people, and, of course, acceptable to the EU. And I think if they do this full-heartedly, they can still get to a decent result. That's still entirely possible. But we don't know what will happen this evening, of course, and I'm deeply grateful to everyone who's kind of come here this evening uh, as against watching the alternative, um, because, you know, about... 7.30 7.30 tonight, we will know whether or not the government has actually fallen. The betting is that it won't. That, you know, all the people who voted against Theresa May last night from her own party in the DUP will all get in line and troop through the lobbies and she will win tonight's vote. So I think it's, it will be an enormous shock if she loses this vote of no confidence. And frankly, if she does, all bets are off in terms of what happens next. So, you know, that's where we are. I think it's a tricky time. It's a time when politicians of all parties, and I think this is not just a message to the government, but a message to the other parties as well, you know, they really need to pull together. We're in a national crisis, a national emergency, and people need to put their differences aside, pull together, and actually try to come up with a solution that we can all buy. Now, that's the message that the CBI is delivering to every politician we know. To some, it's extremely welcome, and they lap it up, and they say, you're absolutely right, let's go for it. Some of them are finding it a slightly more difficult um, message to absorb. So I'd like to look beyond Brexit for the rest of these remarks and and share some thoughts on the future. Um, First of all, a couple of disclaimers. You know, I'm not an expert futurologist. In preparing this, I've gone around and talked to a lot of people and read a lot of books and so on. But, you know, I'm not a an amazing original thinker so nothing i'm really going to say to you tonight is going to be particularly original and if you're looking for original thoughts the exit is at the back and uh, (laughs) feel free to go Uh, and whenever i find myself tempted to talk about the future i'm reminded of something that the chinese philosopher lao tzu said which was those who have knowledge don't predict and those who predict don't have knowledge and i think there is a there's a sort of truism about that and it's worth remembering those words tonight But being here on this campus with all these good things around us, cutting edge technology and so on, I found the temptation to predict irresistible. And of course, when you start thinking about the future of Britain, uh, there are many topics one could address. You could have a whole series of lectures about different aspects of the future of Britain. Looking at demography, you know, what will be the implications of an aging population as we go forward? Particularly if immigration is reduced significantly. how will devolution shape our country in the years ahead? I think one of the potential you know, side effects of uh, Brexit is will be you know, a rising demand for Irish reunification. And will that rise to a level where a referendum, they call it a border vote in Ireland, will be irresistible? And what will be the consequences if there was a 52 to 48 vote in favor of reunification in Northern Ireland? You know, I think that bears thinking about Will the demand for independence for Scotland become so strong that a second referendum is unavoidable? Particularly if we leave the EU on not very good terms. And how will the democratic deficit in, Scotland, in England be addressed? You know, there has been significant devolution to Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, if only the politicians would get out of bed and come together and form a government. Um, but you know, there is a real democratic deficit in, in England and I think some Somebody needs to be giving some thought as to how to address that. The creation of powerful mayors in major urban centres is a start, but it's clearly only a start, it's not the complete answer. And this spills across into politics. You know, both major political parties seem, at least for the moment, to have lost their way. Thirty years ago, political affiliation was determined primarily by social class. And you know, it was pretty clear, you know, depending on the job you did, which largely determined the social class you were in you have, was a very strong predictor of people's voting performance. That's no longer true. Um, now it's determined principally by age. The difference, there are almost as many DE conservative voters as there are Labour voters, and there are almost as many ABC1 Labour voters as there are Conservatives. The real swing factor now is age. You know, younger people, and younger means up to about 50, kind of break to the left and older people that's those of us who are over 50 some of us quite a bit over 50 tend to sort of break to the right now what are the implications of that that's a very very profound change have our political parties really thought about that and woken up to it and thought about what they should do as a result so how do political parties respond to that and of course consumers and Stephen was right to point out he and i both started our lives thinking about sort of consumers and consumer marketing and so on Consumers are changing in their beliefs and behavior. I mean, one could describe that at enormous length, but i just take a couple of examples. You know, we should expect the market increase in veganism to continue. Already, most supermarkets are bringing out ranges of vegan product to cater for, for strongly increased demand. I mean, staggering increases from, albeit quite a small base. That's likely to continue, and you know, those changes in people's eating habits are gonna have a big impact on the food industry as well as on retail. Consumers, particularly the young, are increasingly focused on plastics in the waste stream. And this will require major changes in packaging, which are already starting to happen. Consumer pressure will also reinforce governmental and business focus on other green issues, and in particular on decarbonisation. You know, a live issue at the moment for the food retail industry is the you know, growing pressure that because we sell a lot of beef, um, beef is derived from cattle, Cattle are enormous producers of methane. Uh, I won't go into the details and contribute very, very significantly to global warming. So there is pressure from environmentalists to say, well, you know, let's reduce kind of the proportion of our diet that is accounted for by meat because actually that is contributing to global warming and we should do something about it. So I could go on, but I won't. And Britain, while an Ireland, will be profoundly impacted by global changes. You know, the economic rise of China and India And I've just read a book um, which, called The Rising Tide, which I think I recommend to all of you about demography. And it talks about the growing population in Africa, which is actually going to become a greater and greater part of the uh, world population. Nigeria alone, which has now reached 200 million people, is forecast to be at 800 million by the end of the century. And if the economic problems of actually being able to support a population growth of that sort are not solved within Africa we will see pressure for migration into southern Europe that makes everything that is happening at the moment look like a sideshow and that's something I think we you know we need to think about what's happened in those countries is that mortality rates have fallen in particular infant mortality while still too high is much better than it was but fertility rates have not dropped in proportion so the natural increase in population is very large people still having very large families, whereas in Italy and Spain, for example, the fertility rate is now below the replacement rate, and left to itself, the population would shrink, and Japan is already there. So I think these demographic changes are certainly gonna change very significantly the balance of global population, and if it can be made sustained economically, uh, will also, I think, change the balance of power within the globe going forward. Now, but with the words of Lao Tzu in my ears, I'm going to have a narrower focus. So I want to make just really three predictions tonight. One about technology and its impact. One about skills and one about our future economy. And I'll, I'll start with technology because my first prediction is that most predictions being made today about technology are going to turn out to be dramatically either opt- too optimistic or too pessimistic. They're going to be wrong. Technology simply won't deliver all that's claimed for it. But there is a big but. Where technology does deliver, it will deliver far beyond our widest expectations. Um, I mean, if you happen to be invested in a company that's actually pursuing the right technology, this is extremely good news. If you're not, it's probably bad news. Um, and in this, speculating about the future of technology is a bit like advertising. You know, part of the time it's successful, part of it's unsuccessful. And you don't know, you know, where that is going to be. Let me give you some examples of predictions people have made about technology in the recent and not so recent past. In 1943, at the dawn of the computer industry, Thomas J. Watson, the president of IBM, famously claimed, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. (laughs) That was clearly an overcautious prediction. (laughs) It said that Steve Jobs only ever intended the iPhone to become a slightly better version of the iPod. And of course, you know, was blown away by its success. I used to have in my logistics life, which Stephen is now getting into, uh, have Nokia as a major global customer. I mean, there was a time when Nokia, you know, carried everything before them. They had over 40% of the global phone market. They were the only people really making serious money. They had the lowest cost of production. They were all over the world. You know, five years later, they were actually out of the game. Uh, They had completely missed the attraction of smartphones, and, you know, and it basically killed their business. So, uh, you know, there are lots of examples, I think, of people either overestimating or underestimating this. And I can give you an example from my own experience of how fast technology can bring about rapid change. In the late 1990s, I attended the opening of the world's most advanced TV manufacturing facility in Czechoslovakia, a little place near the Slovak border called Srenica, right out in the boondocks. This was automated, robotized, TVs were manufactured almost untouched by human hand. A very few years later, it closed. What happened? There was a very rapid global switchover from cathode ray tube TVs, do you remember the old things that were sort of this, this deep to flat screen TVs? And in very short order, CRT TVs were unsaleable, not just in the developed world, but elsewhere. The market literally disappeared. Now, did the two multinationals, LG and Philips, who owned and operated this plant, not see this coming? You know, were they completely blind, short-sighted, stupid, or whatever? Of course not. They saw this change coming, but they thought it would take 10 to 15 years. And in the meantime, as the most efficient producers of cathode ray tube televisions in the world, they could clean up as other people gradually closed. They were blown away by the fact the market disappeared almost overnight. So, and they thought, of course, that as many people in technology did in those days, that the adoption of advanced technology would be slower in the developing world than the developed world. You know, you could sell all the fancy new kit in the developed world, and you'd sell last year's model in the developing world. Well, frankly, that may or may not have been true at one stage. It stopped being true around about 1990, when actually uh, people, 2000, and the demand for, you know, the latest kind of technology, the latest gizmos, from the growing middle classes in China and India and elsewhere is just as great. In fact, people are even more keen to have the latest sort of gear. So demand for the latest technology is high right across the world, and so underestimating the pace of change can have a very real cost. But there are also those who vastly overestimate the impact of changing technology. And more and more predictions about the future involve robot surgeons, self-driving cars, drones that can deliver pizza. These might come true, Or they might join the ranks of the 1950s vision of the future in which every family had their own hover car. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Took holidays to the moon. And there are certainly some wild claims out there. Ask Elon Musk, for example, who's made some fairly wild claims, who said that the rise of artificial intelligence will be like summoning a demon, surely the greatest existential threat faced by humanity. Well, clearly, you know, he might be right. But, I mean, we've got to find a way of... Coping with that, I don't think the human race is going to give up uh, to artificial intelligence, you know, too easily. There will be a fight. If you add all of this up, eventually you have to conclude that not everything claimed about technology can possibly come true. And of course, by definition, the possible is always infinitely broader in scope than that which eventually takes place. And that's the bad news in life, let alone technology. But I think there is cause for optimism. because, Because while it's true that most predictions about technology won't come true, Those that do prove correct, are usually hugely beneficial to society. It was true of the first railways, which sparked claims that humans would soon be able to travel at hundreds of miles per second. Well, that didn't quite happen, certainly not on GWR anyway, Um, uh, as well as fears that these speeds would lead to new diseases, even suffocation. In reality, none of this happened. Instead, many of the early investors who gave people like Brunel their backing ultimately lost their shirts. But the next wave of investors did very nicely over the building of railways all over the world. So their hopes were as misplaced as their critics' fears, you know, they got it the wrong way around, but it eventually came. Now, but to us, the traveling public, something similar was true of, you know, that worked. Railways worked for us. Well, kind of I, I hesitate to say that in the UK at the moment, given the state of our railways, but never mind. Something similar was true of electricity. At its discovery, it was treated as a sort of quasi-magical force, um, able not only to slay the living, but to revive the dead and bend the laws of nature. And of course, that wasn't kind of a sensible view. But it's in its proper application in phones and then in factories, it's changed our world. In fact, looking back through history, this pattern can be seen in every major period of disruption, from combustion to computing. Each invention saw wild claims about its potential impact, before its real application was identified, a specific tangible use which was then made which was of utility to society and benefits to society in the long run. So my first prediction is simply that something similar is happening now. We may or may not all have driverless cars soon. My personal view is that certainly in urban environments, they will come. And it will profoundly change people's relationship with cars. You know, If you, are, if you live in a big city and you can whistle up a car you know, imagine Uber without a driver. You can whistle up a car that comes to your door, picks you up, takes you economically wherever it is you want to go. Why on earth would you want to own a car? And, you know, we, we will find levels of car ownership which are already falling in places like London, falling even, even further. The average age at which people take the driving test now, Londoners, is 28. You know, when I was coming up to being able to sit my driving test, I have to say, I had a couple of goes before I got it right. You know, I wanted to take it kind of within days of my 17th birthday. That's no longer the case. That's, that's changed. Um, we may or may not get our pizzas via drone, but the focus, the race, should be to find the areas of application that really will change society for the better, and that's for wiser and bolder people than me to pursue. We might look at healthcare, for example. Just last year, scientists demonstrated, proved, that skin cancer classification can now be done by AI systems at the same level as world-leading dermatologists. And given there aren't too many world-leading dermatologists, you know, isn't that a good thing if it means that world-class diagnosis can be made available to everybody who potentially has this condition you know, rapidly and inexpensively? There have been similar advances in prostate cancer grading, meaning now that for the first time machines can reliably outpace top pathologists in diagnosing some diseases. Um, These are technologies that could matter. These are the ones that might take years to get right in labs and classrooms and universities. And they are the technologies which I hope could one day become widespread, taken for granted, and as taken for granted as electricity and rail travel are today. But there's also a wider point here, which is about public trust in business and the need for firms to act responsibly in a world where the rules and norms that govern our use of technology are still being written i think it's no secret that levels of trust in business are not as high as most people in business would like them to be they're not as low as politicians but you know that is a low bar to have to jump over Uh, and and the risk of course is that with new technologies uh, they are not well thought through and handled And public trust is further reduced when they see, you know, how those technologies have been used in ways that they would regard as unethical, unfair, or whatever. And that's, so I think it's really important that we create new technologies which have a clear, obvious public benefit and not just are a means for making money for the companies concerned, and which hold the potential to begin to solve some of society's big problems. Climate change, access to education, or an aging population. You know, there's a three definite sort of factors for the future. How can we use technology to address, at least in part, all of those? But it's also a responsibility to use the technologies which have already been adopted in ways that serve the public interest. As students, academics, business leaders, and future business leaders, you'll no doubt all play a big role in making this happen. But by discerning what is worth the time and investment and what is not, you're certain to be part of building a brighter future. Now, I'd like to turn to skills about what, and I'd like to make a sort of second related prediction there, about what must happen in a technologically changed world to human skills. Again, it's something that universities like this have a keen interest in, and I want to say that if handled correctly, automation-related and technology will not necessarily destroy jobs, but should lift the quality of working life for almost everyone. Now, that's not exactly the received view, the American economist Joseph Stieglitz cautioned that large swathes of Britain's workforce face unemployment as AI becomes simply a better way to exploit somebody. Is that inevitable? I'd like to suggest that's far too pessimistic a view. Rather, most research suggests that if technology continues to progress at its current pace, far more jobs will be needed in areas like programming, engineering, you know, data, robotics, cybersecurity, you name it. Over the last 15 years, for example, um, automation has created approximately four times as many jobs as those lost. And you know that comes from a piece of research. In fact, the real change, hopefully, and I don't think this is certain, but it's probable, won't be the number of jobs that are available, but the nature of the work itself, with more highly paid, highly skilled jobs in engineering, technology, or science, many of which don't exist yet. When I began my career, for instance, even before Stevens, you know, a year or two before. The roles of social media manager or app developer were unheard of. And uh, um, so technological advances are no doubt good news for those working in sectors such as robotics or fintech or for young people who can train at universities like this one. But those of us in such positions have a responsibility to today's specialised blue-collar workers, machine operators and communities where the local economy depends on a single-factor industry, and there are many of those. Often these jobs exist in the left-behind parts of the UK or the most remote. And if so, the way we scale up technology isn't just a question of prosperity but of social mobility and fairness. And I think there is a huge issue there which is not just for business, but in which business has a vital role to play. Now, this unfairness is not inevitable. It's quite the opposite, in fact. It's perfectly possible that technology could lead to a society in which people cherish human skills, like communication, creativity, resilience, and leadership, while robots take care of the undesirable routine factory (coughs) jobs and production lines. Again, there is a strong historical precedent that we'll be able to get this transition right in time. But, you know, these transitions don't always happen smoothly. In the past, there have sometimes been periods of job destruction before there have been periods of job creation. And you might look at it overall and say, well, you know, in the great scheme of things, that all kind of works out. But if you happen to be someone whose job is lost because of that, you know, that's not such a comfortable conclusion to come to. Um, Just look at the shift away from coal, steel, or shipbuilding in the 20th century. In South Wales, for example, just over the bridge from here, then as now, businesses faced the challenges of new technologies and a changing economy, and the decline of areas that relied on these heavy industries, most famously Cardiff Bay, prompted many to believe that economic progress would permanently stagnate with jobs lost for good. Today, however, South Wales has become the biggest cyber security hub outside London, Firms in Newport and Caldicott are helping to develop the technologies behind 5G, robotics, and driverless cars. And Cardiff is home to countless fintech firms, thriving creative industries, and a competitive digital economy. And I'm sure there's a similar story, by the way, to be told about Bristol. Um, this transition away from heavy industry has by no means been straightforward, but the areas where it's been most successful are the areas that have invested in skills and exploited the expertise of local universities. That's certainly true in South Wales, where a pipeline of talent is supporting the new workforce, such thanks to players such as the National Cybersecurity Academy at the University of South Wales, or Cardiff University's Institute for Compound Semiconductors. Of course, it's hard to tell whether today's technologies will impact the economy in the same way. But we can be sure that a similar transition will only be possible with the right education and training in place for the future, I think this requires two things. First, a shift in the way we think about schools, colleges, and universities, not just as places for academic studies, where the UK has long been world-leading, but as places for technical routes to work as well, you know, creating and imparting the technical skills we're going to need for the future. In fact, I'd like to suggest in the future, say 10 years from now, technical paths through T-levels and apprenticeships will not and should not be seen as the second best option for young people. I think it's vital that we get to a situation where they have equal standing with more academic pursuits, and that our rich history of university education will then be able to continue to go from strength to strength as we prepare young people for a changing economy. This would be a significant shift in the way we think about education. But there's a second thing we need to get right. It's a shift in the way we think about the workplace and the idea of lifelong learning. Many firms are already laying the foundations for this change. Last year, private sector firms in England spent almost 45 billion pounds on training in the workforce, but we need to go a lot further. In the coming years, it's my hope, we'll no longer think of work and education as two separate stages in life. You know, you have education, and then you do you work for a number of years, and then you sort of retire. I'm quite looking forward to going back into education, by the way, when I when I retire. Um, because we need to break down the barrier that sees life in two phases, one for education and one for production. In truth, one leads directly to the other. They should feed off each other. And both education and, you know, meaningful work should overlap and coincide and coexist. Universities, for instance, can do do more and can do even more to, than to offer education and training. They can act as community hubs. They boost exports and local investment. They attract overseas students, you know, which... With, which makes an enormous contribution to the economy. They fuel innovation and create jobs. And our schools, colleges, and universities are important economic players in their own right. But I don't want to dismiss this last point, because often it's not just businesses, but universities that do much of the heavy lifting to prepare for the future economy. And that's why, as I said, this university gives me such hope for the future workforce. And when it comes to the impact of technology, institutions like this could be the difference between a successful, well-managed shift towards automation and one which risks harming those most vulnerable society in the name of economic growth you know we've got to get that right and it's it's not simple and this brings me to my final prediction about the future of our economy this is perhaps the trickiest part to predict with brexit on the horizon but one thing does seem probable if we make the right choices and my prediction is in the next few years we will, we will finally start to seize the great untapped economic opportunity of our age. And that's to do really with services and our ability to export those services across borders. Because in the past decades, a change has taken place in our country, an unprecedented and unparalleled change in our journey from being predominantly a manufacturing economy to predominantly a services economy. This shift of focus from manufacturing to services is not always celebrated a few even take adam smith view. adam smith came from the same town that i was educated in kakodi in scotland but nonetheless this is what he said that as he put it the services sector is comprised of buffoons opera singers and musicians <laughs> um, and you know i'm not sure which of those we would all wish to be part of which sounds like it could have come from the twitter account of the president of the united states <laughs> But while most people in this country know the change has taken place, few understand the scale of the change, and even fewer understand its implications. Yet if we can correct this, if we can explain the profound change that's taken place in our country, we have an opportunity to change the outdated rules that govern our economy for the better. Let me start with the scale of the change. In the 1970s, manufacturing comprised around 30% of our economy. Back then, we could still think of ourselves as the workshop of the world as a nation of manufacturers selling goods around the globe. Now, we're still a home for a lot of high-end manufacturing, particularly in the skilled manufacture of cars and chemicals and aerospace products and others. We're one of the largest, um, (coughs) world's biggest producers of aircraft engines, for example. And the UK has long been home to many world-leading pharmaceutical companies. (laughs) So, you know, we, we are very good at what we're good at. But despite the high value of these activities, the growth of services in our economy has been astounding. Over 80% of us now don't go to work in factories. We go to work in offices, we're architects, call center staff, designers, lawyers, accountants, management consultants, retailers, coffee shop baristas, software engineers and advertisers, you know. That's where we do our work and that's where the bulk of the economy is. The workshop of the world has become the central office of the service provider. As I said, some echoing Adam Smith have not welcomed this change. Whether it's good or bad, The evidence shows it's to be just as big a change as the one Adam Smith witnessed and encouraged of our going from an agrarian economy in the 18th century to an industrial economy in the 19th. And just as in the Industrial Revolution, which preceded the Services Revolution, we've made the change more quickly and more fully than any other country. So you know, in a sense, we're further on with this than most of the rest of the world. What hasn't happened is a commensurate change in what we sell to the world, our ability to do that. We still export more goods and services, despite services being such a large part of our economy. And if we can change that, we'll have seized the great economic opportunity of our age, not just to make up the exporting ground we have lost, that decline in exporting seems to have stopped now, at least temporarily, as we've moved away from manufacturing and exporting goods, because also in the future, the signs are that many manufactured products that are today sold as goods, will in the future be bundled with services. It's a simple point, A century or two ago, one of this country's greatest exports was clothing. Our cotton mills clothed humanity. And when we can't say that today, we do still actually sell a lot of clothes. Tesco, for instance, one of the companies I'm involved with, sells over a billion pounds worth of clothes a year. But there's a difference. They're designed in the UK. The patterns and cutting guides are created on computers here. They're transmitted electronically to the factories in many countries where the garments they're... Are made up you know the cloth cloth is cut and they're made into garments and there's no reason why in the future all manner of products can't be sold as services with the value-added content being generated primarily here in the UK if we're smart enough to do it it's already happened with music and film and software and computer games isn't it interesting that the leading provider of stream music worldwide Spotify has its roots in Sweden It's building a huge business in Latin America with only a handful of staff there because actually what they can do centrally, the skills they have in, you know, bringing 100,000 new tracks on every week to their library, making those available to people in a way that's kind of user friendly and so on. All of that can be done offshore. You don't need many people, you know, on site to make that happen. So, you know, that's a, a one very clear example. So floppy disks and CDs are being replaced with downloads and streaming. Rolls-Royce already makes more money by remotely monitoring and servicing engines than it does by manufacturing them. So it's not just a huge opportunity for British business, but a surefire way to actually revive and increase our productivity. And, of course, in a world of ex Brexit uncertainty, it's hard to know exactly what our trading relationships with the rest of the world will look like in coming years. already we're seeing an increase in digital trade for example and free trade agreements are beginning to modernize to include provisions on services i mean it'd be a great shame if we throw that away by you know a poor brexit agreement but i don't want to get back to brexit now this shift to a service economy doesn't limit our manufacturing sector indeed it may well be in the future that more manufacturing is repatriated to companies because as the economic development of the developing world goes on and real wage rates rise, and as production is more robotized, there's no real reason to believe that you're going to be able to buy a robot more cheaply in China than in the UK. And therefore, I think the sort of repatriation of quite a lot of manufacturing can take place, which will make sense. It will shorten supply chains, make it easier for people to be, you know, very uh, uh, rapid in their changes to consumer demand. You know, if you're involved in fast fashion, you know, and you actually want to be able to... Spin on a top, it's a lot harder if you're sourcing garments in Indonesia than if you're Zara and you're sourcing them in, in northern Spain. So, you know, for all the talk of the you know these concerns about the global kind of system working from Trump's talk of tariffs and so on, trade and services could be the next big unexploited opportunity. And now that brings me to my conclusion, you'll be relieved to hear. Um, And to that end, I'd like to look at the words of the economist John Maynard Keynes, who wrote in 1930 an essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, in which Keynes looked to the future of Britain and the implications of the technology of his day, hoping it might lead to three-hour shifts in a 15-hour week. (laughs) That would be good. Um, Where activities of purpose could one day be balanced with the arts of life much like those who today hope that automation and machine learning will lead us to a world of a four-day working week now don't abandon the idea of a four-day working week there are a number of firms small firms who have deliberately moved to four-day working and you know they may be the harbingers of a trend that is going to come you know with where people have abundant time to paint canvases or write novels or frankly just sort of you know lie around and do nothing he may still be proved right in time but the part i really want to finish on was his prediction Of course, it will all happen gradually, not as a catastrophe. Meanwhile, there will be no harm in making preparations for our destiny. So as students, staff, business people, and university professors, and some of you who are here all of the above, I thank you for all the preparations you're making for our destiny, and I'll be very happy to take a few questions from you. Thank you very much.
3: that um you'll be surprised to hear that the the skills references in the university sector i think tied very well with some of our interests very directly but particularly i'd be very surprised if, if people haven't got other questions many of which may well be for example, but we'll, we'll go to the audience um, please wait till the microphone arrives and when you receive the microphone please tell us who you are and and what your affiliation is please uh but, John's indicated that he's, he's happy to, to, to take questions from as broader a
4: reach as you want to ask. Please go ahead. Uh, John, good evening. My name is Jim Hawkins, uh, uh, ex-Naval officer, having come out of the service recently and worked as in uh, central London doing coordination for cross-government activity. Uh, I understand your point about lack of trust in government Uh, I did notice working my previous role but not only is there a lack in public trust in government there's a considerable lack of trust between government departments and the way they go about their business and that may or may not impact how we go forward in the future. I want to pick on on your point of trust and public trust in businesses and Tesco and perhaps the other supermarkets have been allegedly accused of maybe malpractice such as hoarding land banks forcing local authorities to approve um, out of town shopping areas or maybe social mapping of people with a tesco club card how much trust do you believe the public have in tesco and other supermarkets and how do you improve that trust that they have of you as a big organization with significant influence across the whole spectrum of what goes on in society
2: sure well it's a very fair question and and let me kind of answer it in a little bit of detail um there is no doubt at all that in the past uh tesco as with many other major companies you know actually behaved in ways which I think would leave good cause concern for people. We're trying very hard to stop that. You know, I've got an inspirationally good chief executive officer at Tesco who whose instinct in any situation where there's a choice to be made is to do the right thing rather than the easy thing. You know, so he's very principled, he's very value driven, and I think that's important. And the second thing is, you know, and saying I've learned from him, it's his, but I've adopted it, which is, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to you know, uh, achieve a better reputation and more trust through words. we've actually got to do it through actions. And I think his belief is that the things that we should do are actually, which will make a difference over time will make a difference to our reputation. And we can see that in the tracking studies we do already. you know our reputation's improving. So what are we doing? For example, we're heavily active in minimizing food waste and trying to ensure, as far as we possibly can, no food that is edible is thrown out of our stores. We've built relationships in every store throughout the country. That's three and a half thousand Tesco stores with local charities. A couple of students at Trinity College have came up with an app that enabled those the local charities we're working with to be able to connect with us, find what we've got, and they come in and collect it. And those kids, I mean, they were very, very young when they did it. They've now formed a social enterprise. We've made. You know, although we had some intellectual property rights, we've made those available to everyone, so any other supermarket chain wants to do the same, it can do so. So that's one tiny example. Uh, we're working very <coughs> hard on health issues related to food. If I could remember, I would t- tell you about the billions of calories we've taken out of soft drinks by reformulating them, that we put five more fiber into quite a lot of products. You know, We have actually had monthly promotions where... We've offered people healthier alternatives to things they might buy otherwise, and we've actually worked with our supplier partners to ensure that those alternatives are not dearer. You know, why should you pay more for a healthier version of something? than so we work very hard with the um, with cancer research, uh, with the British Heart Foundation, with Diabetes UK, because all of these diseases there is a dietary component to you know what they are, and you know we have raised millions with them to to actually do that and we do that every we do that every year um, and I could go on we've just signed a uh, agreement with WWF because of this whole issue of you know greening and everything else and a recognition that you know farming in the developing world is making an adverse contribution to global warming and so on so we're doing lots and our reputation is slowly improving and I think we've got to continue to do a lot more uh, probably for another decade or more. And we've obviously got to avoid own goals like, you know, sort of obviating, because I think, you know, you can lose your reputation incredibly quickly. And it takes a long time to get it back, you know, and this shouldn't be like snakes and ladders where, you know, you laboriously climb up a ladder over five or ten years, and then some idiot does something which destroys your reputation and you're back to where you started. Now, I think for business generally, not just for Tesco, we're the largest single private sector employer, In the UK, we employ 330,000 people in this country, which is approximately 1% of the workforce. I think a test for every employer ought to be, if we can't get the people who work for us to trust us, what hope have we got of people generally having trust in business? So I think, you know, if you define the stakeholders in your business, in our case, it's, you know, a third of a million uh, people who directly work for us and probably another 200,000 who work for people who manufacture a product for us, probably half a million people whose livelihood depends on Tesco. Do they trust us? And what are we, are we doing enough to get them to, to have you know, genuine trust in us? And they're close enough to the business to know whether this is all smoke and mirrors or whether it's actually genuine. Then you turn to, we have about 11 million customers every week. You know, Are we doing the things that are going to lead to them feeling that we're more trustworthy? Because I think if we can't succeed with our own stakeholders, an individual company, business as a whole, is not going to succeed in raising its level of level of trust. So I think this is a big thing. My own view is it's, it's ten years' work. You know, it's not going to be, it's not going to happen. But we we should, you know, set out our store to try to do it. We should anticipate occasionally there will be setbacks because, you know, um, customer interest change. You know, for example, this interest in reducing plastics is relatively recent, but by heavens, it's very strong now, and we are reformulating such that by 2020, I think, we'll have eliminated all of the nastier plastics from our things, things like PVC and so on, which are difficult to uh, recycle. We will be only using plastics like you know, polyethylene, which are potentially recyclable. And that frankly, two or three years later, we'll have eliminated plastic altogether. Now that's a huge undertaking. And I'm sure our competitors, by the way, are trying to do the same things. You know? Uh, but it's a response to the fact that the customer, who mm. probably 10 years ago only a tiny handful of people were concerned about this, now it is of mass concern to many people. And I think we have to be prepared to respond.
3: John. There's another one here. Take a minute. Put
1: the one here first. Uh, good evening, Mayor MacDonald, uh, Institute of Directors, Southwest very much enjoying uh, your predictions for the future, uh, both, if you like, at the micro and the the macro level. But my question is, how well prepared do you think our boardrooms are to adapt to or grab the opportunities of, of that future? I'm thinking in particular of diversity in the boardroom but we tend to think of that, of course, as gender balance. I'm thinking more of age balance. You know, mm-hmm. We talk about our social media managers, or app developers, jobs that didn't exist mm. a few years mm. ago. Um, your views on, on bringing more youth into the, into, the, yeah. into the typical boardroom.
2: Yeah, well, look. I think, first of all, I think diversity is absolutely vital, and there is no doubt. You know, I think both the boards that I chair, we have considerable diversity in terms of gender, some diversity in terms of ethnicity. We've actually worked on that. We're now looking at, How do we get, you know, greater diversity in terms of age? Because having said that, there is this huge generation gap. I I reflected in relation to political views, but it also is true of many, many other things. How can we get access to that? And we have formulated some ideas. We haven't gone public with those ideas yet, but other companies are trying things like having younger managers attend board meetings and making a contribution or having a kind of junior board which considers the same business and has an input to the uh to the board Uh, i heard of one example recently where the junior board met after the kind of the normal board and i thought well that's a bit futile because the normal board's made all its decisions what's the point of getting the younger guys to rerun it better if they met before so that if they had any really good ideas you'd have that sort of input but i think your your comment is absolutely right on you know i think we have to get greater diversity uh, and i'm absolutely convinced that more diverse boards were better. Now, it's not just about diversity. I think we work, I've just sent a kind of email to uh, Tesco directors asking them to identify their, their the collective and individual training needs they have for 2019 because, you know, I think we shouldn't feel that once people get to kind of, you know, being non-executive directors, they somehow they are, they're the finished product. You know, they're perfect. They're incapable of learning. I think on the contrary, we're moving in such a fast-changing world that you know we kind of have to learn all the time, and I'm, part of my job as a chairman is, I think, is to is to uh, identify the areas where you know we are in danger of falling behind, uh, and to take action to try and ensure that we have got, first of all, that the board members themselves have at least got an appreciation of those issues. Take cybersecurity, for instance, but they're not going to become experts. But also that we have access to the appropriate skills we need externally or internally so that we can actually handle it so it's not just about the board knowing what how to spell it but you know but other things as well so so it's a big issue and it's not everyone's licked it and not everyone will lick it
3: john a couple more down here just one there and then the lady um, coat thank you.
5: my name is moira booth i'm now with the rotary club of bristol but i used to teach food and nutrition Uh, John, you you mentioned the rise in veganism and my my concern is that with a vegan diet, a a healthy vegan diet, it can be based on unprocessed foods, lots of fruits, vegetables and some cereals that are not highly processed. I'm concerned that supermarkets are rising to the challenge by producing very highly processed foods for the vegan market. We've now got burgers that, that, that bleed um, with beetroot juice and we've got highly processed vegan sausages and so on. And I'm just concerned that maybe supermarkets are going to be chasing the profit in these processed foods. So
2: what what is Tesco doing? Well, Thank I think you. trying very hard not to fall into those traps, but I would certainly, I give you an open invitation to, you know, Communicate with me about the concerns you have. And frankly, even come and meet our nutritionists and so on in Welling Garden City and give them your input. You know, we'd be delighted to see you and to listen because you're quite right. There is a challenge here, which is, you know, there are people who want to have a vegan or a part vegan diet. You know, I mean, I I'm not a kind of committed sort of ideological vegan, but I do eat vegan foods from time to time because I think a bit of it is sort of good for me. But I don't want to give up everything else <laughs> yet, all the time. But there are people who actually want to commit to a vegan diet, but they want something that's kind of familiar and looks like the stuff they've been eating before. And I think there is the potential risk you highlighted that that might lead to, you know, supermarkets producing, um, you know, food that actually, while technically vegan, is actually not very healthy. And I think that's a trap we need to try to avoid falling into. I'm less worried about us trying to make money out of it because, frankly you know, the money we make out of individual food items is pretty modest. But I am concerned about the point you raised about, you know, sort of somehow putting a kind of badge on something that's kind of good for you when in reality a particular item isn't. But please, I'll give you my card at the end of this. Get in touch. We'd love to talk to you. We have a bunch of, you know, very, very passionate people involved now in product development and so on who are, who know far more about this than I ever will. Um, But I think trying to ensure that they're, passion and commitment and energy is directed in the right way is, is important. So please, let's talk.
4: Hi, um, my name is Adam Root. I'm the founder of Inheriting Earth. Um, we're based actually on future space just <coughs> across the road. Um, my question is actually about um, plastic. You kind of mentioned this briefly. So I do a lot of work on ocean plastic and sustainable product design. I'm interested to find out from the supermarkets, and particularly your opinion, really is if we're going to kind of move towards um, a more biological cycle for packaging, um, so compostable, um, single-use stuff, or more technical sort of recycling. So the stuff that would be contained, that would be hundred percent recyclable, or, or heading that way, is a solution for what's been referred to as the ocean plastic crisis. Do you have an opinion on this?
2: Uh, Not really. Um, (laughs) It's a very good question. I think the answer is some and some. But again, I'd invite you to, you know, kind of uh, uh, talk to our packaging development people who, again, are equally enthusiastic and so on. What I have heard indicates that, first of all, a gradual process, trying to get rid of the most harmful plastics first and then moving on, and then secondly, a variety of solutions that will... You know we will end up with food that's still kind of protected because you know we're not going to just kind of hand out slabs of meat sort of uh, unprotected but nonetheless you know are as ecologically positively packaged as we can sort of make it and I suspect there won't be a one-size-fits-all answer but I mean you know let's let's again I'll give you my card communicate with me and I will connect you to people who actually do know something about this topic
3: Another question here in the middle. Uh,
1: th- thank you, John. That's um, really full of really interesting intra- I- insights. Um, I- I'm Brett Sadler from the UK Leadership Academy. I'd like to pick up on uh, a point that somebody made earlier around um, doing the right thing. Your response to that was that you were doing the right thing kind of in res- uh, as a as result of consumer pressure. Um, although you have said that you are developing a culture of doing the right thing from your chief executive, which is great. But with your CBI hat on, what can CBI do to encourage business to do the right thing because it's the right thing rather than because they're being forced to by the customers?
2: I think it's more difficult when you come to a collection of businesses. You know, I know... Inter- by the way, we're not just... I, if I gave the impression that Tesco was only doing the right things because we're getting consumer... Consumer pressure is a very helpful and valuable... Lever in getting people to do the right thing so I don't discount it in any way at all I think it's good if consumers are saying to you, you know We want you to change in this way, but actually I think you've also got to have the kind of inner motivation And this is what I'm very pleased we have through I think our, you know, our new management team at Tesco a desire to do the right thing anyway sort of thing um, so uh, But when you then come to a collection of businesses, it's more difficult and when I go around to talk to businesses I find nearly all of them are doing things that are good uh, but they you know, getting that across to people is, is, is very different, because they are very, they're all very different, you know, the stuff that Barclays Bank is doing in terms of making young people ready for work and so on is very different from what somebody else may be doing in some other field. So it's an unsolved question, you know, it's one I'd like to find the answer to, the beginnings of an answer to, during my term of office as CBI president. I've got another 18 months to serve. Uh, I will be very unhappy if I haven't started something by the time I demit office. I have no belief that we will have solved it by the time I leave office because I think if if it takes 10 years for an individual company to raise its game on this front, you know, business as a whole has got far more. And of course, you know, every time a business does something that with the benefit of hindsight looks, you know, looks unfair... Uh, You know, if, for example, you're a financial institution and you give much better terms to your non-customers than your existing users, you know, and we've all been in that situation, you can't help but feel, you know, these guys are taking advantage of me. And therefore, I think, you know, the first step, I think, for any business is really to question what it does and say, you know, is the stuff we are doing which is justifiably contributing to people lacking trust in us. And the first thing you better do is stop doing bad stuff before you actually focus entirely on doing kind of good stuff. And I think some businesses are in much better shape than others, and there are some industrial sectors where, you know, um, uh, people have counted on customer inertia to stay somewhere. Now, I can say to you very proudly that... Tesco Mobile, our mobile phone business, until recently, this may have changed, was the only mobile phone business who told people when they got to the end of paying for their handset and therefore that they should move on to a much lower tariff where they were only paying for the airtime that they consumed. It is, the historic practice within the mobile phone industry is you basically strike a contract and frankly, people are going on paying for it until it starts to feel bad and they, you know, they raise their, their hands and ask for a better deal. Now, I think that, you know, whole industries have still got work to do to behave in a more responsible way. And there's no way I think you can convince people you're doing great things in terms of the long-term environment and plastic reduction if customers feel that they are being, you know, unfairly, unfairly treated. I think you've got to start with the basics. So, big subject. If anyone has any bright ideas on raising trust in business, please let me have them, because it's a question every time I go and see a big business leader now, and leads a smaller business, part of the conversation is, look, what clues have you got as to what we can do on this, and I'm sort of <coughs> gathering in as many ideas as I can to try to help contribute to finding an answer.
3: Every little helps, Tesco, so we've only got time for two more questions.
1: <laughs> hi, hi, John, it's uh, Paul Burton from POBY. You uh, mentioned a few kind of connected areas around technology, Mm -hmm. uh, trust in businesses. Um, There's some predictions that about 14% of the population in the next 10 years will be displaced by technology and automation. You you
4: talked about £45 billion worth of investment via private companies in training. Yet that's less than half of the investment that's made generally in Europe. So around
1: between £200 is invested here per, per employee. In Europe, it's about £500. So, how do you balance um the changes that industry is going to have to make to support reskilling with the lack of investment that's been made comparatively
2: mm-hmm. well i think i think you've probably got look, you can, you've come up some with some very good statistics first of all i think we need to raise consciousness of the importance of this issue and to persuade persuade or require people to do more in this space. That's why, frankly, I welcomed the apprentice levy, because the apprentice levy, I think, was gonna force people to spend more money on training. Now, the apprentice levy, I think, was kind of incredibly badly implemented to the extent that if I actually wanted to provoke any most of my business contacts into kind of, you know, heart attacks. All I had to do was to say, how's the apprentice levy working for you? And people would get red in the face, you know, and sort of collapse and fall over. So I think it's been poorly implemented, it's sort of getting better. But actually, conceptually, it was a very good idea, just poorly implemented. I think we've probably got to be prepared. You know, this is an area where maybe, this, let me say, this is a personal view. CBI will probably lynch me tomorrow for saying this. Mm. I think in some cases, I think the state's got to be more interventionist in, you know, requiring standards from people. <laughs> now, another good example where actually the CBI's got a very honorable record, you know, we have just secured a commitment from the government to raise the level of R&D spending in the UK f- from wherever it is currently, about 1.7% of GDP to 2.4% of GDP, and government quite rightly understandably is saying, isn't that terrific? the reality is we need to get it to about three percent of gdp and 2.4 percent of gdp is no better than most of our european competitors so you know we are eliminating a negative at the moment rather than creating a creating a positive so i think that you know the more people who are aware of the statistics that you quoted and to recognize that you know You know we're not in a static this is what i say to people in any business that i'm involved with you know we're not in a static world where you say look this is what your competitors are doing if we can raise our game you know we'll sort of get ahead of them the reality is they're probably spending just as much time thinking about how they can raise their game so that they you know they become more competitive so you know often you're in a race to stay equal you know let alone a race to to actually get ahead and establish competitive advantage thank you john very last question For anyone who doesn't get to ask a question, I'm happy to stay around for a bit after, for you know, if anyone wants to kind of buttonhole me for half an hour or so, I'm happy
0: to do so. Good evening, um, Dario Calipore, I'm a final year undergraduate student here, as well as the president of the debating society. Um, thank you for the depth of answers you're giving um, this evening. I think a lot of speakers that come to these events have a lot to learn. The insight has been fantastic. I just want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier. Um, Your support for greater investment in T-levels and technical education is something I completely agree with, but um, I feel like it's kind of contrary to um, your point about how, in the future, more jobs will stem from AI and automation in programming and engineering, and that we'll be seeing a rise in the number of high-skilled jobs. Um, Earlier, you said that the change in the main factor that determines political allegiance is no longer class but age. But we also know now, especially in the West, in the UK and America, that also capacity and you know inherent dare I say biological intelligence is quite a big factor what 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 do we do for those people I mean we're all at a university so our, our worldview may be slightly skewed but what do we do for those people that cannot be reskilled or um, do lack um, the potential scope let's say to go into these high skilled 21st century jobs what's the role of business in supporting them
2: Yeah, look, first of all, I'm not going to give you a glib answer and say, well, it's easy, you know, you just do X, Y, and Z. I think that's a real challenge. But, you know, what will be, there is no doubt, there are going to be lots of jobs required and required in even greater numbers in our future society where, you know, what will be important is not people's level of, you know, intelligence as we've traditionally measured it, but perhaps their their levels of emotional intelligence, their ability to kind of... Relate to others, to care for others, and I think don't think that's necessarily strongly. I don't, you know, somebody here probably in this room will shoot me down on this. I don't think that's necessarily strongly correlated with with kind of you know with IQ, EQ, and, and so on. So I think one of the things we're going to need is a lot more jobs. You know, with an aging population, I think people are going to need. There's going to be greater need for carers of all sorts, people to provide personal services of all sorts. And I think, you know, maybe that's a clue to one of the ways in which we can create worthwhile jobs for, you know, a broader section of our society. Because I think it would be tragic if we ended up in a situation where, you know, we had great jobs for 50% of the population, and the other 50% were an underclass who were unemployable. You know, I personally find that very, very difficult to accept. So I don't know the answer to your question, but I think it is a really important one to answer. John, thank you very much. You've
3: been tremendously generous with your time, and um, as you say, you've offered to, to, to be around if people want to, to talk to you a little bit further upstairs. It uh, remains only for me to thank you wholeheartedly from, from Bristol Business School in the <coughs> University of the West of England, and offer you a small
0: token of our esteem. Oh, gosh. Our
2: gratitude. Thank you very much.
0: For more information on the Bristol Lectures series, including details on how you can attend, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures.